Section two of Octavius by Minucius Felix, translated by John Henry Fries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter seven. In the meantime, I will venture to grant the point. And if I am wrong, I prefer to err in good company. It is not without good reason that our ancestors so zealously observed the auguries, consulted the entrails of victims, instituted sacrifices, and dedicated temples. Look at the records of our chronicles. You will find that our forefathers admitted the rites of all religions, either by way of thanks for divine favors, or to avert the threatened wrath of the gods, or to appease their actual rage and fury. Witness the Idian mother, who on her arrival in Italy, both cleared the reputation of a Roman matron, and delivered the city from the fear of the enemy. Witness the consecrated statues by the lake, representing the twin brethren on horseback, just as they appeared when mounted on their foaming and reeking steeds in hot haste they brought the news of the victory over perseus on the same day on which they had gained it witness the great renewal of the games in honor of offended jupiter the result of a plebeian's dream witness the self-devotion of the decai justified by the event witness also courteous who filled up the deep and yawning gulf with the bulk of himself and his horse, while the people assisted by throwing in gifts of grain and valuables in his honor. More often, indeed, than we wished, neglect of the auspices has borne witness to the presence of the gods. Thus Alia in a name of ill omen. Thus the attack of Claudius and Junius, on the Carthaginians was no battle, but a disastrous shipwreck. Flaminius despised the auguries, with the result that Lake Trasimus was swollen and dyed with Roman blood. Crassus mocked at and justly incurred the curses of the Furies, with the result that we had to reconquer our standards from the Parthians. I omit numerous instances in ancient history. I say nothing about the songs of the poets on the birth, gifts, and favors of the gods. I also pass over oracular predictions of the destiny of the world, lest the history of antiquity should seem to you too full of legend. Look at the temples and shrines of the gods, the protection and ornament of the Roman state, they are rather worthy of honor by reason that their divine inhabitants, ever-present indwellers, than rich in worship, decorations, and votive gifts. Hence it is that our seers, full of, and as it were, mingled with the god, anticipated the future, give warning of dangers, heal the sick, encourage the afflicted, help the unfortunate, console the suffering, assist the toilers, even when at rest we see, hear, and recognize those gods, whom in the daytime we impiously deny, 
refused to acknowledge and forswear. Chapter 8 Accordingly, since all peoples are firmly convinced that there are immortal gods, although their nature and origin are undecided, I cannot think there is anyone so audacious and so swollen with impious pretensions to wisdom as to endeavor to destroy or weaken so ancient, useful, and salutary a religion. Certainly Theodorus of Cyrene, and previous to him Diagoras of Milos, called Athios by the ancients, both asserted that there were no gods, a statement which, if believed, would have utterly destroyed the feeling of awe and veneration by which human actions are governed. But they will never secure much influence for their impious doctrines under the name and authority of their sham philosophy. Protagoras of Abdera, who discussed the question of the Godhead rather as a philosopher than as an atheist, was banished by the Athenians, and his writings publicly burnt. Is it not then deplorable that an attack should be made upon the gods by certain fellows? You must excuse my expressing with some freedom how strongly I feel in regard to this cause I have taken up. Certain fellows, I repeat, belonging to a party whose case is hopeless, proscribed, and desperate? Having gathered together from the lowest dregs of the people a number of ignorant men and credulous women, always ready to believe anything, they have formed a rabble of impious conspirators. At their nocturnal gatherings, solemn fasts, and barbarous meals, the bond of union is not any sacred rite, but crime. It is a people that lurks in darkness and shuns the light, silent in public, talkative in corners. They despise our temples as tombs, insult our gods, ridicule our ceremonies, and, in need of pity themselves, profess, if allowed, to pity our priests. Half-naked themselves, they contemptuously refuse offices and dignities. Marvelous folly and incredible audacity. They despise the torments that are before their eyes, but they fear those that are uncertain and in the future. They are afraid of dying after death, but have no fear of death itself. Thus, treacherous hope quiets their alarm by the comforting assurance of a life hereafter. Chapter 9 Ill weeds grow apace, and these vicious habits are spreading day by day, and these abominable secret haunts where these impious wretches hold their meetings, are increasing in number all over the world. These execrable conspirators must be utterly rooted out. They recognize one another by secret signs and marks. They love one another after the briefest acquaintance. A kind of religion 
of sensuality prevails amongst them. They call themselves promiscuously brothers and sisters, and, under the cloak of these names, are guilty of the most horrible offenses. Thus, their vain and foolish superstition glories in its crimes. Were these charges untrue, rumor, which is ever shrewd, would never spread such scandalous reports about them, such as I should be ashamed to mention. I am told that, under the influence of some foolish belief, they worship as sacred the head of the lowest of animals, the ass, a religion worthy of the morality from which it sprang. Again, to say that a man who had suffered capital punishment for a crime and the death-dealing wood of the cross are objects of their veneration is to assign fitting altars to abandoned wretches and to assert that they worship what they deserve to worship. The details of the initiation of novices are as horrible as they are well known. An infant covered with dough to deceive the unwary is brought to the would-be novice, who, misled by the coating of dough and encouraged to deal what are apparently harmless blows, secretly stabs it to death. Then, shame on them! They thirstily lick up the child's blood and eagerly divide his limbs. This victim is their bond of union, complicity, in the crime is their pledge of mutual silence. Such rites are more abominable than any acts of sacrilege. What takes place at their banquets is also well known. It is everywhere talked about, as is attested by a speech by our countryman of Serta. On a fixed day, they assemble together, children, sisters, mothers, people of both sexes, and of all ages. After much feasting, a dog fastened to the lamp is encouraged by some pieces of meat thrown to it to spring violently beyond the length of its chain. The lamp, which would have been an inconvenient witness, is overturned and extinguished. After this, riot and indecency reign supreme. Chapter 10 I purposely omit much. What I have already said is too much, and all or most of it is shown to be true by the very atmosphere of secrecy which surrounds this impious religion. Why do they make such efforts to hide and conceal whatever it is that they worship. Honorable acts always welcome publicity. Only crimes delight in secrecy. Why have they no altars, no temples, no well-known images? Why do they never speak in public, never meet freely, unless it be that the hidden object of their worship is either criminal or disgraceful. But whence, who, or where is that one God, solitary, forsaken, 
whom no free people or kingdom, nor even Roman superstition, has acknowledged. Only the miserable race of the Jews also worships one god, but at least openly with temples, altars, victims, and ceremonies. Yet their god is so weak and powerless that he and his people are prisoners of the Romans. And what monstrous absurdities the Christians invent! According to them, that god of theirs, whom they can neither see nor show to others, carefully investigates all men's characters, acts, even their words and secret thoughts, since he is present everywhere and always on the move. According to them, he is a nuisance, restless, shamelessly curious, being present at man's every act and wandering from place to place. But if he is occupied with the whole, he cannot attend to details, and if he is engaged with details, he cannot do his duty to the whole. Chapter 11 Further, Christians threaten the whole world and the universe, together with the hosts of heaven, with destruction by fire, and profess to believe in its future ruin. As if the eternal order of things, established by the divine laws of nature, could be disturbed, the bond of all the elements broken, the framework of heaven taken to pieces, and that mass by which it is enclosed and surrounded undermined. Not content with this insane idea, they improve on it by adding certain old wives' fables. They assert that they are born again after death, when they are nothing but dust and ashes, and, strangely confiding, believe each other's lies. You would think that they had already come to life again. A twofold evil and a double folly. While threatening the heavens and the stars with destruction, whereas we leave them as we found them, they promise themselves, on the other hand, eternal life when dead and extinct, the inevitable sequel of birth. Hence, it is easy to understand why they curse our funeral pyres and condemn cremation, just as if every body, although withdrawn from the flames, were not reduced to dust, as the years and ages roll on, just as if it makes any difference whether our bodies are torn to pieces by wild beasts, swallowed up by the sea, covered with earth, or destroyed by fire. Any kind of burial must be a punishment to them, if they had any feeling after death. If they have not, cremation must be regarded as a more beneficent remedy in the rapidity of its effect. Self-deceived, they promise themselves, as the elect, the blessings of eternal life after death. The rest of the world, as evildoers, are doomed to eternal punishment. I could say much more on this, but I am in a hurry to conclude my speech. I need not labor the point that it is they themselves 
who are the evildoers. I have already proved it. Although, even if I were to admit that they are good and honest men, I know that most people are of the opinion, and in this you agree, that guilt or innocence is the work of fate. While some consider fate responsible for all our actions, you attribute them to God, so that the members of your sect do not favor it of their own accord, but as the elect of God. Thus, you imagine an unjust judge who, while punishing men for an action which is due to fate, spares those who follow their own will. However, I should like to ask whether we are to rise again with or without bodies. If the former, with what bodies? With the old or new ones? Without bodies? But this, so far as I can judge, would mean no life, no mind, no soul. With the old bodies? But these would have been dissolved long ago. With new ones? Then this is a case of the birth of a new man, not the renovation of the old. And yet, although so much time has elapsed and countless ages have passed, is there a single trustworthy instance of a man having returned from dead like Protosilaus, if only for a few hours? All these figments of a disordered brain, these senseless consolations invented by lying poets to lend a charm to their verse. To your shame, you have hashed up in your excessive credulity in honor of your God. Chapter 12 Not even does the experience of the present convince you how deceptive are these empty hopes and useless promises. Miserable wretches, you can guess from what happens to you during life, what awaits you in death. Look, some of you, the greater, the better part, as you assert, suffer from want, cold, toil, and hunger, and your God permits it, or pretends not to see it. He either will not or cannot help his people. Hence, he is either powerless or unjust. You, who dream of immortality after death, when unnerved by severe illness, consumed by fever, racked by pain, can you not yet understand your condition? Do you not yet recognize your frailty? Against your will, miserable wretch, you are convicted of weakness, but will not admit it. But to pass over things common to all, Consider again what awaits you. Threats, punishment, torture, crosses, no longer objects of worship, but instruments of suffering, fires, which you both anticipate and dread. Where is that God of yours? Who is able to help those who come to life again, but not the living? Do not the Romans, without the help of your God, rule, govern, and possess the whole world, 
and hold sway over yourselves. But you, in the meantime, in your suspense and anxiety, abstain from legitimate amusements. You never visit the shows, never join the processions, never attend the public banquets. You express abhorrence of the sacred games, of meat already offered in sacrifice, of libations poured upon the altars. Thus you show your fear of the very gods whom you deny. You never crown your heads with garlands, nor grace your bodies with perfumes. You reserve unguents for funerals. You even refuse to lay wreaths on the grave. Pale and trembling wretches who deserve to be pitied, but by our gods. Therefore, if you have any sense, any feeling of shame, give up prying into the quarters of the sky, the destinies and secrets of the universe. For ignorant, uneducated, rude, uncultivated people, to whom it has not been given to understand human affairs, and who are still less qualified to discuss things divine, for such it is sufficient to look at what is before their eyes. Chapter 13 If, however, any one of you desires to philosophize, if he is capable of it, let him, if he can, imitate the example of Socrates, the prince of wisdom. Whenever that illustrious man was asked about heavenly things, he answers, as it is well known, That which is above us has nothing to do with us. Justly, therefore, the oracle paid a tribute to his remarkable wisdom. He himself clearly perceived that he was put before all other men by the oracle, not because he had found out everything, but because he had learnt that he knew nothing. The height of wisdom is the confession of ignorance. This was the source of the prudent skepticism in most important questions which distinguished Archizelus and later Carnids and several Academicians. This attitude enables the ignorant to philosophize with caution, the learned with ostentation. Is not the hesitation of Simides, the lyric poet, worthy of the admiration and imitation of all? When the tyrant Hiero asked him what he thought about the gods and their nature, he first asked for a day to consider. The next day he put off his answer for two days more, and then, in spite of the hints given him, asked for another two days. At last, when Hiero asked the reason of his long delay, he answered, The more carefully and deliberately I examine the matter, the more obscure does the truth appear. I also am of opinion that things which are doubtful should be left as they are, and, since so many distinguished men are unable to make up their minds, we must not hastily and rashly take one side or the other, 
lest an old wives' superstition should be introduced, or religion be entirely destroyed. End of section two.